Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey folks, I've got some exciting news. On Thursday, October 1st at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Cafe will be hosting a live cocktail hour via Zoom. I'll be joined by my friends and fellow Cafe hosts, Ann Milgram, Lisa Monaco, Ken Weinstein, John Carlin, and Ellie Honig. We'll discuss the first presidential debate, the state of the country, and the latest political and legal headlines. We'll also be answering questions from viewers. I hope you'll join us. Again, the date is Thursday, October 1st at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. To receive an invitation, you can sign up at cafe.com slash pre. We'll be sending out the Zoom information in the coming days. If you already receive emails from Cafe, then look out for an email from us. And if you don't, again, you can sign up for free at cafe.com slash preet. That's cafe.com slash preet. And now on to the show. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Like many other people that got into cooking, you got into cooking because you couldn't do anything else. And I felt like if I couldn't do this, what else was I going to do? What I learned early on was if I just worked harder at this, I'll get better. And gave me so much meaning as a person. That's David Chang. He's the founder of Momofuku, the noodle bar turned restaurant empire. Dave is out with a new memoir, Eat a Peach. The book is about his unlikely journey to becoming a Michelin star and James Beard award-winning chef. It also chronicles his upbringing and struggles with mental health. I went on Dave's podcast, The Dave Chang Show, last year, and a lot has changed since then. Today, we talk through his new book, his philosophy of feeding people, and where the food industry goes from here. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Walt, who writes, You've recently described a long-standing policy of the DOJ not bringing actions in ways that suggest an undue attempt to influence voters. This Nora Danahy story suggests a race to do the opposite. Are you giving odds that the District of Connecticut will observe this standard of propriety? Of course, the story that Walt is referring to is one that lots of people have been talking about, and Ann Milgram and I talked about at length on the Cafe Insider podcast. And essentially, it's the story of how the top deputy at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Connecticut, Nora Danahy, has stepped down from the investigation of the origins of the Russia probe. You'll recall that John Durham, who is the U.S. Attorney in Connecticut, was assigned that task some time ago. And the President of the United States seems very anxious for there to be a result, anxious in particular for there to be a negative report about some of the people involved in that investigation. And obviously, he also wants there to be indictments, charges. And he clearly wants those things to be done before the election so they can have an impact on the election. All this was reported in the Hartford Current. I, I want to caution folks, though, there is no confirmation from Nora Danahy that the reason she resigned was because she felt political pressure to do something inappropriate, either substantively or with respect to the timing of the investigation she's doing with John Durham. But I will say the timing of it, the fact that she came back into government specifically to work on that case, and because of the track record of both the president and the reporting of Bill Barr suggesting that he wants something to be done before the election, I think lends credibility to the reporting that that's why she resigned, at least in part. There's also reporting in that article that Nora Danny has told colleagues that she has been uncomfortable increasingly over the past weeks about pressure to do something she found to be inappropriate. 
The next point I'll make is people talk a lot about the so-called 60-day or 90-day rule, which different people interpret differently. I want to make clear that there is no codified specific statute or regulation that says you cannot do X or Y in advance of an election, either within 60 days or 90 days. Rather, what all good prosecutors and good faith people in the Justice Department have always understood, including when I was there, before and after, is that you want to take very good care prudentially, near in time to an election, whether it's 60 days or 90 days or some other period of time, not to do something that will unduly affect the election. That's not to say that there are occasions when a law enforcement action needs to be taken that might hypothetically or arguably have some impact on an election, but you strive very, very hard not to do that unless there's a very, very good reason otherwise. Now, I want to point out a distinction. There's two categories of thing here. One is you're otherwise undertaking a good faith investigation and you have a good faith need to bring a charge or to take an investigative step, and you're worried that doing that good faith thing might impact an election, maybe you think about holding off, or maybe you think about not doing that thing, because a consequence of the action might influence the election. It is quite a different thing, and much more nefarious, and much more concerning, if you're trying to take an action for the purpose of interfering with an election, or having an impact or an influence on the election. And based on the reporting, and the suggestive statements of the president, and Bill Barr, and others, it seems like this falls into that second category that there seems to be a rush and pressure on Nora Danahy at one point and continuing on John Durham to take some action before the election. For what purpose? For the purpose of affecting the election. You know, we don't, we don't bring prosecutions in a vacuum. Sometimes the consequences of your actions are unknown. And that's why you decide to go forward and not go forward based on this prudential 60-day or 90-day rule. Here, we know exactly what's going to happen. To the extent there is anything negative at all with respect to perceived adversaries of Trump, before the election, he is going to weaponize any Durham report or any Durham indictment for his own political purposes. Everyone knows that, and that everyone includes Bill Barr. So that's why, in my mind at least, the undue pressure to do something before the election, as the reporting suggests, is particularly nefarious and particularly undermining of the values of the Justice Department. So as for your last question, it's hard to answer, which was, are you giving odds that the District of Connecticut will observe this standard of propriety? It depends on how John Durham views that standard of propriety. It's my understanding that Nora Danahy and John Durham are quite close, professionally and personally. And it has to have been a blow to the investigation for her to leave, especially if she left for these reasons that we've been discussing. I don't know John Durham personally. Lots of people say he has a reputation for integrity and he's handled difficult investigations during different administrations, people from both parties. And I think there's a lot of pressure on him and to the extent he respects Nora Danahy and respects her opinion and respects her decision, maybe that compels him to do the right thing in this case and not be rushed to do something inappropriate before the election. But it's hard to say. Everything seems upside down these days. This question comes in an email from Molly, who writes, I enjoyed your latest episode on the merit trap. That's the episode with Michael Sandel. It did a great job of explaining the resentment our American meritocratic society created that led to a president like Donald Trump. However, it still left me wondering why those who feel resentment often vote against their interests. Many politicians who claim to be against elites or experts often also enact policies that hurt their base, such as gutting Social Security or eliminating pre-existing condition protections in healthcare. Thoughts? Well, Molly, that's an excellent question, and one that I think a lot of people think about and a lot of political analysts wonder about and argue about, because I think it is the key to understanding how to expand your party's base, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. But I think the best answer to your question, or at least one of the best answers to your question, came in an earlier podcast episode when I interviewed Isabel Wilkerson on her book, Cast the Origins of Our Discontents. And she and I had a conversation based on some of the things she writes in her book about why this might be, why it is that some groups simply want to be superior to other groups or feel superior to other groups even if they're not getting the benefits politically that you would think would come to them and why they make certain kinds of political decisions. And she, she actually provides a direct answer to your question. And I wonder what you think of it. Isabel writes on page 327 of her book, Cast, the following, quote, Cast gives insights too into the Democrats' wistful yearning for white working class voters that they believe should respond in higher numbers to their kitchen table appeals. This is your question, Molly. Why, some people on the left kept asking, why, oh, why, 
were these people voting against their own interests? The questioners on the left were unseeing and yet so certain. What they had not considered was that the people voting this way were, in fact, voting their interests. Maintaining the caste system, as it had always been, was in their interest. And some were willing to accept short-term discomfort, forego health insurance, risk contamination of the water and air, and even die to protect their long-term interest in the hierarchy as they had known it, end quote. There's obviously a lot more there in the lengthy book by Isabel Wilkerson, but in a nutshell, that's her response. I wonder what you and others think. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. My guest this week is Dave Chang. You might know him as the founder of the Momofuku Noodle Bar, as the host of the Netflix show Ugly Delicious, or as the voice behind his podcast, The Dave Chang Show. Dave's new memoir, Eat a Peach, tells the story of how he went from a junior golf prodigy to one of the biggest chefs in the world, and the struggles he overcame along the way. At a time when the future of the restaurant industry is highly uncertain, I'm excited to have my friend Dave on the show today. Dave Chang, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I'm very excited and honored to be here with you, Preet. I'm excited. You know, we have a lot to talk about. There are a lot of things that you have written about in a new book. There are a lot of things going on in the world. I, I want to say at the outset that you and I are friends. We've we've dined together, uh, hung out together, and I was on your podcast once. You were. That was a good and one. It was a, it was a great it was a great conversation. Can I ask you a couple of questions about this new great book that just came out that everyone should read? Certainly. It's called Eat, Eat a Peach Memoir. And, and so my first question is, why is there no table of contents? I didn't even think about that. I mean, not only is just... there no table of contents, Dave, there's, there's no index, which makes it very <laughs> difficult. Like, so all your chef friends who you name drop throughout the book, how the hell are they going to do the Washington read and figure out if they're mentioned and how often they're mentioned? There's no index, no table of contents. What's up with that? I think that's because I was a poor student and you were an excellent one. <laughs> It just, it just, it's fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but as I was, as I read every page of it and it's great and, and very revealing and insightful for a lot of different reasons. But I just thought, is there a reason for that? Um, 
All right, I'll, I'll get to more substantive questions now. As we discussed when you had me on your podcast, you know, I'm a lawyer and the book was ostensibly about justice. It's called Doing Justice. Your book is a memoir written by someone who's in the restaurant business. But just like my book wasn't just for lawyers and prosecutors, your book is not for people who have a vested interest in that industry. Who's your book for? Well, um, without any like preference of order, I think it was obviously the culinary industry. Uh, I've had an inside look as to how high-end dining and independent restaurants have operated for like the past 20 years as cooking has become more and more popular and part of the cultural mainstream. Uh, two, I think because I address it so much in the book is sort of the Asian American identity and sort of my growing up in that. And three, I think it would be discussing mental health, um, something that I've been open about for some time. And I think another one would really just be uh, sort of what I thought the book was originally going to be when I signed on to do it, uh, a manual of sort of the the trials and tribulations, the do's and don'ts of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, I think it's all of those things. Can we, can we talk about the cover? This is an audio program, but I love the cover. And you spent some time talking about the cover. Uh, your book is called Eat a Peach, as we've said. And it's a portrait of a big peach being pushed up a mountain by a little black silhouetted man. Is that an Asian man? It's Odd Job from James Bond. <laughs> it's not necessarily the first choice I wanted to do because there's a lot of reference to Sisyphus and his uh, eternal struggle of pushing a boulder up the hill and how we sort of compare that to the culinary industry and and uh, some of the absurd parts of my life. But more specifically, I wanted to just do a cover of Idris Elba, the actor, uh, because, you know, we, we did a bunch of uh, covers and we tested them all out. You did a mock-up, you said, of Idris Elba. <laughs> You're like, let's put him on the book cover. Because all the covers of my face, I didn't want. So we, we got a, a portrait done uh, from my friend, an artist, and uh, we tested it all out. And we went to parts of America that were not on the coasts, right? So middle America, <laughs> and there was overwhelming data that said people hated my face, my eyes, <laughs> and my on. last name. I'm not joking. I'm not I am not joking here. We got this back, and I, but Why everyone was like, wow. So, see, your first mistake was trying to get data about your face. <laughs> I have never, I have made, I've made it a point not to commission such studies. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get disappointed. But you said something about, so, so people appreciate it. It's a, it's a huge peach being pushed by a small man up a mountain, a la Sisyphus. And you describe the myth of Sisyphus as an inspirational tale. That's not how most people think of it. Right. I think most people would think of Sisyphus as a hell on earth, right? That would be the worst possible existence. And I found some weird place in my life that I, I hold... Sisyphus as an inspirational story because I think it's the only true choice you have. And obviously a lot of this is derived by Camus. And, you know, even though I'm a chef, I, I, I weirdly have read a bunch of things that I'm, I'm sure are not academically perfect in its understanding. But how I've taken it is something that is a little bit different than what might be out there. I, I sort of disagree with Camus as well on, on a couple instances, but I, I take it as my ability to choose not to be who my default setting is as a person, right? And I think you sort of have to reject yourself in order to be the best version of yourself. And nobody really wants to do the work, right? Which is why I think it's so closely associated with cooking, right? You spend so much time, so much sacrifice to put food on a plate only to see it flush down a toilet eight to 10 hours later. It's uh, the dumbest job in the world. It really is. It's incredibly stupid, yet, um, you know, I cannot explain or articulate in any meaningful way to convey, like, how much people love it, why I love it. And I think it's partly because it is so patently stupid, yet you still do it. You do it with gusto. You pour yourself into it. And to me, that's, that's rejecting what you're supposed to do, right? And I see that in cooks. When you start to cook and you take it seriously... So many of us that are in this profession, especially me, I never organized. I never cleaned up. I was terrible student. I didn't do any of these things. And then one day you can see these newer cooks sort of really struggle. And then one day they get it. It just clicks. And they're like, I'm going to love cleaning. I'm going to love organizing. I'm going to love sharpening my knives. And that's the moment when people understand that I just have to not be me in the kitchen. 
and things things get better, things change, and and that's how I, I liken it to to sort of my life. And and I could complain, I can lament all the whatever bad things that might have happened to me, and I do trust me, I do. But at some point, I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna put in the work, and I'm gonna push it up the hill. And to me, like that's sort of how I look at it. And I where in Camu in Camu's book which again, it's a terribly written book, right? The, the first five pages, the last five pages are the only things that seem to be sensible. But he says, you have to imagine Sisyphus happy walking down the hill. I think that's crap. I think that he's unhappy. I think happiness is the effort. Happiness is putting going the up work. the hill. Yeah, going down the hill, he's probably like, God damn it, I got to do this all over again. You know, and, and his ability to reject the gods because he was, you know, destined to do this forever. That is human nature, in my opinion, to not do what you're supposed to do and to do something that ultimately is selfless and better for humanity. That's the goal. Yeah, you know, something you said a minute ago struck me because I had never sort of thought about it this way until I read it in your book, which is that if you cook, you're a chef, and you spend your life making food for people, the fruit of your labor is literally feces. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dramatic way of putting it. And I don't know that I've thought of it that way before. I'm going to try not to think of it that way when I go to a restaurant. Um, from time to time in the future. So you talk about Camus. You have a meditation on cubism in the book. There are no recipes, but lots of you know thoughtful things you say. Is it, is it necessary or important for someone in your profession in order to become a great chef to be intellectual? Uh, well, that's a question I wrestle with quite a bit. I think in the past, it was not a prerequisite to know anything other than cooking, particularly how we adopted, uh, Western cultures adopted so much of its ideology and traditions from French, the French brigade system, the, the culinary system created by Escoffier many years ago. And it's really rigid and based on the military, no joke. And, and um, that's all you need to know. Just cook, know your techniques. And that's it. It never required artistry or the idea that it was a craft until recently. And I think one of the advantages I had was I had an education that wasn't just based on the culinary arts. And I think that's given me an advantage. And I think a lot of the chefs you see that are of note right now or the past 10, 15 years, they're, they're not just of a culinary school background. They have a variety of backgrounds. And I think that's made the culinary arts more interesting. I think you have a section of your book at the end when you, when you give 33 tips on how to become a chef. And I think you say, study Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that's liberal arts. I mean, once you realize that in order to do something new, more than, more than likely you have to sort of connect the dots in the past. I, I'm so always surprised that cooks and chefs refuse to actually read anything else outside of cookbooks or sports or music. You know, there's so much more out there and, you know, anything, history, art history. I, I, I think I, if you're going to become a cook, I'm going to just reiterate this as I do to all young cooks, go to a great state school work in kitchens as you're going to school and major in something that's like real engineering, uh, mathematics, sciences, whatever, or, you know, liberal arts, anything but just cooking because it's twofold. One is it gives you different ideas and different patterns in the world that you're going to be able to apply to cooking. And the failure rate for uh, chefs or aspiring cooks, I think is 95%, really. And you don't want to spend all your life with a culinary degree or without a culinary degree, if you're a dropout, as many cooks are, with nothing else other than that. You want to have something that you can fall back on. And I think having a college degree is a good thing in that regard. So, I mean, Preet, if you were still uh, representing the government, I think you should go after culinary schools because I think it's a sham. <laughs> Is there, is there a Trump culinary school? <laughs> well, you know what? Could, could be next. There were Trump steaks. So, you know, maybe that could be next. Were. So, obviously, we are living in a time of pandemic. It delayed the publication of your book. You didn't really have the chance to talk about it in the main part of your book, but there is an afterward. So let's maybe begin with your afterward. And you have some observations based on how devastating the pandemic has been on the restaurant business. And I want to sort of get a sense from you of the scale of the damage to the restaurant business in the early months of the pandemic and what the state of affairs is now and what we can expect for the future. I mean, if you're listening to this and you've never heard of me before, it's not going to be a surprise or should be a surprise that I'm incredibly a doom and gloom person. I'm a pessimist that hopes to be wrong. And at the, the very beginning of this, I would say probably around mid-February, 
I, you know, have a lot of friends in Asia that are in the restaurant business and I saw how it decimated them. And it was pretty clear to me that once this got to America, this was going to do exactly what it did to restaurants in Hong Kong and Wuhan and, and Seoul, Korea. And yet simultaneously, I was like, well, I feel pretty confident our government is going to do a better job. Why I believe that, I don't know. Um, Because that's historically been the way that America (laughs) has handled things, this being a notable recent exception. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and and, and I thought worst case scenario would do 90%. It would would make 90% of independent restaurants close. That was my back of the envelope math. And a lot of people were like, you're just out of your mind, Dave. You're always a naysayer. And I don't want to be right about this. This is a terrible scenario. And I think it will be right. I think when it's all said and done, you know, there was a resistance to the idea that we thought that even I thought it we August, September would be the time we'd be reopening at the worst case scenario. No one in in my industry thought it would last a year plus. And I don't think any restaurant uh, outside of publicly, you know, restaurants that have access to public markets can sort of survive that. So this is a problem. And when they said 25% occupancy and 50% occupancy, those are just random ass numbers. And if you are in the restaurant industry and you follow closely the, the, the health code and protocols, just let me tell you guys, they still, the Department of Health for the most part still hasn't updated a national or even comprehensive state level about all the do's and don'ts of safety protocol. Um, for how to handle food in a post-COVID world. And that should tell you something. We're just so behind across the board. No one had any idea when it began. And here's the problem, Preet. No one on the government level has really implemented anything since the beginning of COVID crisis other than you know, reopening restaurants at a lower capacity. And what they haven't done is, that's okay, Preet. If you want to force restaurants to, to reopen or just do takeaway and dining, that's totally fine, but we should do something that a lot of our neighbors, particularly in, say, Sydney, uh, in Europe, and in Canada have done. You're going to continue to subsidize restaurants as they are closed or operate at a limited capacity. We have done none of that, and PPP is just a Band-Aid, and it doesn't cover a lot of the other things that a restaurant does. And, and because of that lack of intervention, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think collectively restaurants are going to be like Lehman Brothers of 2008. And why does that matter so much? Because of its effect on the economy, because of its effect on individual people that the government seems to be leaving behind? All, all of that, Preet. And, and I, I want people to understand that restaurants, are, are it's too small to fail. And that's what I've been saying, because you're going to have the same repercussions as it might hit investment banks and, and, and Wall Street. All of this is connected to real estate. All this real estate is levered, sometimes highly levered. So it just is going to unfold in a different way. But people should understand that their small restaurants or the restaurants they frequent that are not chains or, you know, have corporate bodies, they're banks. They're, but they're banks in two ways. One, they are banks because I think like 95% of all cash flow in, in generated by restaurants goes out the door immediately to other parts of the industry, you know, uh, accounting, legal services, bakeries, florists, butchers, you name it. But we don't charge interest. Right. And secondly, a lot of these restaurants are cultural banks, whether they serve good food or not. These are institutions that are so central to your community. And you need to understand that. And we're going to lose them unless we do something about it. And I, I, I'm I'm terribly afraid of what's going to happen. And I have spoken to actually a fair amount of elected officials in Congress and their hands are tied. They don't know what to do. And on some of the people that I really admire, they're asking the hard questions that I think we need to be asked because they don't want to pump money into an industry that was this fragile to begin with, that was barely working before February 2020 in terms of the economics and rising fixed costs. So they're like, okay, we will do this if we can fix the foundation correctly. And that deals with you know all the labor issues and, and a lot of the stuff systemic problems in my business that can only truly be fixed with legislation. So we're sort of, I mean, I'm trying not to curse here, but we're totally screwed because on, on, on the right side, you have Republicans that are like, screw it. We, you know, restaurant industry is doing fine. Look at how fast food is doing. You know, their, their, their revenues are up and blah, blah, blah. And on the left, you have people that are like, well, we're not going to fix something that's already like problematic. It needs to be better. So I don't know what to do. 
Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So in this afterward to your book, I want to quote from some of it. You present two scenarios 15 years out. So you present the 2035 worst case scenario and then the 2035 best case scenario. So I want to, I want to read some of this and, and have you amplify or expand. With respect to the worst case scenario, you write, quote, in the wake of COVID-19 and other subsequent pandemics, oh boy, the vast majority of independent restaurants have been allowed to die. Fast food won. People who tell stories about the restaurant dining era are dismissed like music fans who never got over Elvis. <laughs> you also say the remaining hourly wage restaurant employees, especially undocumented workers, have seen no improvement to their salaries, benefits, or job stability. And you say, we've lost a great many family-run restaurants. So that's the worst case scenario. And I'm gonna have you talk about that in a second after I calm people down and have them hear what you say about the best case scenario. Although I worry that you begin the best case scenario with the premise that aliens have invaded. <laughs> the point of which is to say, there's some momentous global event that has finally awakened us to our common humanity and we become unified again. And you say in this best case scenario, quote, innovative farming and advances in food production in combination with widespread changes to people's eating habits have helped curb climate change. Quote, in the wake of COVID-19, the government recognized the essential work of the food industry and helped independent restaurants recover from the financial toll of the pandemic. More people are cooking and growing food at home. Cooks and chefs help lead the way out of the COVID-19 pandemic, both by feeding those in need and by leveraging their expertise to help the world safely adapt to a new landscape. So which of these two scenarios is going to come to pass, Dave? I, I, I hope it's the optimistic version. And, uh, you know, we've been pushing for that. I think... What needs to happen for the optimistic version to happen? We, we need to overhaul the entire food system in America. Um, again, so starting that, with the labor force. What does that force. mean? You, you, you and I have talked about this before. The difficulty of, you know, egalitarian access to food the high cost of, of the restaurant industry yep. and bringing all of this um, and bringing investment in because it's a, it's a low margin industry. And most, most restaurants, I don't know what the statistic is. You must know even before the pandemic, they fail. 99% of restaurants close in five years. 90% of those restaurants that make it like before they even make it 90% close within the first year. Uh, and it's 99% never reach five years. So that's why even before the pandemic began, very rarely ever met, meet someone that raised money or got a loan through the bank. I mean, everyone understood the economic model of restaurants was was very weak. So, how, so how do you change that? That's the that's the nature of the business, right? You you buy a piece of meat at whatever cost, and then you have to combine it with labor, and then you serve it on a plate, and you just you can't charge you know five times what the meat costs. The way I understand it, that a lot of restaurants make money uh, is by offsetting all those costs with the ability to mark up alcohol. Yep. Well, I think first and foremost, there's a lot of different ways you could slice this like giant problem up. And whenever I think about this, it always go back goes to distilled to one factor and food needs to be more expensive. I can't force anyone to figure out what to do with that profit, right? Um, but I hope that, you know, using say Patagonia as a model or something like that, it's, you know, being benevolent with your profit and if the government won't take care of healthcare, if the government won't provide benefits to your employees, then it's going to obviously have to come from you know private companies, and that's what needs to happen. And all of this change needs to happen in the restaurant industry, but we can't afford to do it because at the end of the day, people do not want to pay more money for food. They just don't. And even people that are like, quote unquote, organic this and organic that, they still don't even buy organic ketchup. 
And there's, I can't remember the data that I found, but it was like surprising that people that only buy organic won't buy the 75 cent more organic ketchup. It's just something in our brains that are hardwired to prevent us from, you know, paying more for food. It's something that we believe has to be cheap and that has to change. But not only that, you, you pointed out in the book that people have particular expectations about how much they're going to pay for a certain kind of food. So in your experience, right, people will pay $20 or more, depending on the nature of the restaurant, for a bowl of pasta, but they're not going to pay more than eight or 10 bucks for a bowl of noodles, even if it takes a lot more work. Why is that? It's straight up racism. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's just straight racism. There's, there's no other way around it. I mean, it's something I've been fighting against for a long time. And uh, that reckoning, amongst many other things that are, that are going through this sort of moment of awareness uh, and getting changed is, is the racist element in food. And if you spend the same amount of time or more time making a plate of noodles that happen to be Asian and someone that runs an Italian restaurant opens a can of tomatoes with a box of spaghetti and puts some Parmesan and basil on it, you could charge that Pomodoro for, depending on the restaurant, 28 to 34 bucks. Can you imagine a, a Asian noodle shop or Asian lo mein or something like that, Chinese restaurant serving a bowl of noodles for 34 bucks? And, and then all the people will say, oh, no, it's the decor. I was like, well, that's a racist, too. You can't say that because one restaurant has better decor and the other one doesn't. Like, that is a whole larger issue in and of itself. So I think people are having this conversation now. So that's a that's a step in the positive direction. But as a whole... You know, I think the food world and everything that's in it from labor to the things that are on your plate, to the restaurants you go to, to everything that you eat, people need to know just how it's a Trojan horse for all the positive and ills of our world, right? It really does and capture so many things. Something is very confusing to me because this statistic that you mentioned, 90 plus, 95% or 99% of restaurants closing within a short period of time, that's not a new fact. That's been the business model for years and years. And I want to tell you a quick story. I think I mentioned this to you. I don't think I mentioned it publicly, at least not on the podcast. Back in 1977, 1977, a long time ago, in the great state of New Jersey, the Garden State, where I grew up, there was opened in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, an Indian restaurant called Himalaya. It was only the second Indian restaurant in the entire state. Try to think about that now, how many restaurants that serve Indian cuisine now. And the reason I mentioned that restaurant is it was owned by, started by my dad, a pediatrician, his best friend, a pediatric cardiologist, and my uncle, who I think was like 28 years old, had just emigrated from India, having spent some time studying uh, hotel management and restaurant management in Austria. And out of the blue in 1977, I'm nine years old, they take their savings and they put it into an Indian restaurant where nobody had really had Indian food before. And they struggled and tried to make it for uh, you know about eight or nine years and lost only lost money on that restaurant. And so the question is, and this goes to my family as well, if the stats are so depressing, what is it about a restaurant or making food and serving people so interesting to people that they think that they're the ones who are going to defy the odds and make it work? What is it about that industry? It's an industry of addicts. <laughs> that's, that's really it. <laughs> You know, it's it's so similar to talking to someone that has a heroin addiction. I swear to God, because you're you're constantly chasing this this illusion of a high that you can make it work, that you can finally do something that no one else can, that you have a story to tell that's going to resonate with everyone else that eats it, that you're a great home cook and that's going to translate to a profitable business. It's it's actually not so different than like you know you know, the gold rush, uh, in America years ago. It's, it's that like prospect that you can do something that doesn't require extraordinary skill sets. You just have to make food and add it with the fact that this tantalizing prospect that something so simple can turn into a business because it seems so simple. It's like, I can do it too. And once you get a taste, once you see that you can make someone feel good with your food, that's the addiction. You're like, I love that. I want to do that more and more. And I get, I can make money doing this. And I'd also add one more thing to that, Preet. So much of the culinary sort of knowledge and canon about opening restaurants have sort of like masked the failure, right? We, we sort of really celebrate the entrepreneur uh, climbing up the, the, the metaphorical mountaintop. And that's the journey. That's what you have to do. And we rarely ever look at the failure. 
I experienced it firsthand, hearing the stories in my house about, you know, what a mistake this was and how money was going down the drain and how they had to cut costs. Um, I washed dishes at my family restaurant. I waited tables at my family restaurant. Uh, my brother did too. And multiple nights a week during the existence of the restaurant, we would go there while my dad, again, after hours as a, as a trained pediatrician, would help to do the books. And my brother and I would do our homework in, in the back room of the restaurant. But it's always been amazing to me, given that, how many people think, well, we can make it work. One more thing to add that, it's important to note what you what your parents, what your father did too, as even though he's a trained pediatrician, it's it's about community. It's about making food for yourself and the people around you. It's so important to remind yourselves that one reason why it continues to happen and people continue to open restaurants, it's one of the only ways an immigrant can open up a business without knowledge of how to speak English. You can literally open a business selling food without knowing anything other than how to make food. And that is what makes it such a dream for people to do. Right. And your own ethnic food. So exactly. it is true that my father and his friend you know, didn't know much about the restaurant business, but they knew and understood the ethnic food because they had grown up with it. And the other people in New Jersey who were going to be the potential customers did not. So it was bringing something new. I mean, I think they thought it was an innovation. And they were a little bit ahead of their time. Now the idea of an Indian restaurant um, not being frequented by a lot of people seems odd. But it took, look, you talk about this in the book too. And I wonder, while we're on the subject, what you can observe about the introduction of a new food into a community, particularly if it's you know, not going to be cheap. You know, for a long time, we, we never went to Indian restaurants, even when they became more popular, although my parents owned one. It's kind of a, a paradox because we can make Indian food at home. <laughs> You're going to go to an Indian restaurant and pay someone else for chicken tikka masala? That doesn't make any sense. What's your sense of how difficult it is to introduce new cuisines to communities unfamiliar with them? I mean, something I feel like I've had a lot of experience with. Um, you know, it's that line from like, you know, the Moneyball, the movie version, you know, the, the first person through the wall always gets hurt the most, right? And unfortunately, for anyone that's open a business, selling food for the first time to a community that's never had it, they almost always go out of business. And it's not just that, it's the two dozen after that, that almost always go out of business. And it just shows you that cultural truths of how we think about the world, particularly food, is almost always wrong. Deliciousness is a universal thing. I really believe that. If you find something to be delicious, for the most part, that's there's certainly exceptions to the rule. You know, if you make something delicious, I think it really does transcend culture. And the only thing that prevents you from understanding it or being open to that is not necessarily xenophobia. It's just that you're scared and it's different and it challenges your assumptions of the world of what you think is delicious. And it's hard to ever like crack a new market. It's damn near impossible. And the only way you can do it is just, you know, failure. And I don't know if that's a, a, an easy answer for that question, Preet, but I see the, the thing that I see as hope is that it does happen. It happens. Eventually, people are open to it, and it happens all the time. And not just that, there's an evolution in people's thinking in different communities with respect to how to think about certain kinds of cuisine. I mean, you, you say in the book, you, you remind us that not too long ago, Italian food was considered inferior. Is that right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I talk about Italian food so much, particularly Italian American food, because I'm so jealous of it. I'm incredibly envious of its success and its global outreach because it's so popular. We're talking from pizza to spaghetti and all kinds of pasta. Like, I remember growing up as a kid, I was born in 77, going to the grocery store and looking at olive oil in the supermarket aisles and realizing they actually sold pomace oil, which is crazy, which is like the lowest grade, like almost motor oil. And there was no distinction between extra virgin or, you know, all, it was just like olive oil. And now in 2020, and it's been this way for 10 plus years, you actually have an entire aisle in many supermarkets dedicated to olive oil from different levels of spiciness, from different parts of the world to different filtration. It's unbelievable. And just think about pasta. I mean, 25, 30 years ago, no one, no one knew that there was bucatini. You know, there was like spaghetti and that was it. And now right, right, if, right. if you like your kids age, if you don't know different shapes of pasta, you're, you're an imbecile almost. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's crazy to think about. And I remember being in cooking school, a famous chef, Alain Ducasse got six Michelin stars. And that was a big thing in, in high-end dining. Like how could one guy have two restaurants with three Michelin stars and blah, blah, blah. And all the French chefs 
were talking ill of him, saying he just does glorified Italian food. That's, that's just beneath them. It's too simple. And now that's all people want. And even in the mid, uh, mid-aughts, New York Times Restaurant View, which is still like the, the, you know, the, the, the paper of record for food too, is can a New York Times ever bestow four stars to an Italian restaurant? Like that was a thing. Like, could it ever be good enough? That's crazy to think about now because no one would ever think that because that's actually what all people want to eat is Italian food. And that acceptance happened over time with travel, with education, with, you know, marketing on television. And that can happen with all foods. And I think you're going to see with Asian food, you're, you're going to see with Indian food, if that's not happening already, you're going to see with the foods of Africa and all of these new stories from different people are happening. And I believe wholeheartedly in that. And we just got to give it time. So I, w- I want to get to your story in a second, but before that, you just reminded me of something. And tell me if my perception was incorrect. I feel like for a period of time back in the 90s, you go to an Italian restaurant and the one thing you could not get was spaghetti. Uh, it was all sorts of other fancy things and, and people thought it was too lowbrow at a nice Italian restaurant to serve spaghetti. And then there came a time when people reverted back to some basic idea of what people wanted. And now you can get spaghetti. Am I correct <laughs> or not? You can get spaghetti every which way possible now. But like 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't get spaghetti at an Italian restaurant. What's that about? I can tell you exactly why. Because people thought it was lowbrow. I mean, that's like not that long ago, but people consider it's Italian food as lowbrow. I mean, it's some, crazy. Every once in a while, I went out in New York. I, I just want spaghetti and meatballs of a high quality, not possible. See, there, there's, a, there's a chef that actually changed that. And this is why food to me is so fascinating. It's a little bit like, like sports where you can connect the dots with the coaching tree and who came from what. And... You know, a lot of the, the 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 sort of the genesis and all the change in New York City food came from these chefs that came from Europe, and they trained a whole generation of American chefs. So, someone like Scott Conant, who worked for like, you know, Christian Deluvier and a bunch of other famous chefs, and he's a chef of note. You can see him on the Food Network. He created really one dish that changed dining. That was spaghetti pomodoro. He didn't create it. He just brought something that was very popular in Italy, and made it for Americans with fresh spaghetti with a different name of like, so it's not spaghetti. It's just all marketing. So much of food is marketing and they just tweak it here, there, and you can sell it for $28. And people say, this is the best dish I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Because you, as a kid, even my Indian parents, you know, my Indian mom made spaghetti with meatballs. She learned that very quickly when we socialized after emigrating to the United States, who doesn't like spaghetti and meatballs? So let's talk about, let's talk about your beginnings. And I learned some things I hadn't really known about you. So you were a golf prodigy as a young boy and had terrific natural talent. You describe how you played a lot of golf and you had significant coaching and you could beat everybody. And then one day you sort of lost the, uh, the eye of the tiger. And you describe it as being sort of, you were out of the mental game because golf is such a mental sport. And on the other hand, and the reason we're talking right now, you say you had no skill at all in the culinary arts in cooking or anything else. And yet that ended up becoming the way in which you became as successful as you are. How do you, how do you explain that? And then the larger question, philosophical question for you is, are you at the point where you're at now because of luck or because of merit? Wow. These are, you're my friend, man. Why are you asking me these hard questions? What the hell? <laughs> you're the one who's talking about Camus. Ah, no. Um, well, listen, what, you know, golf, It's funny, like, I I didn't really understand what gaslighting meant until I thought about it in relation to my own life. And I still couldn't tell you if I was really good or if I was just right place, right time, or maybe the competition wasn't good enough. I I don't know, but I do wrestle with this uh, often because I would rather be like objectively great at something. And that's why I love sports so much. And golf, while I was good at golf, I wasn't the best because that was Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson uh, growing up and other people. And if I didn't reach that level, then I'm a failure. And at least that was, that was how I was raised. And I still think if I'm not the very best, I'm a failure. And even like football, I was really good at football, but I didn't get division one scholarships. So what does that say? Am I good or am I just you know, good in a, I mean, a big fish in a small pond, like who, who knows? So a lot of this is how I was raised and I can't, you know, unprogram, deprogram that. That's just how I think. 
and it's almost become pathological. It's like you have to strive to be the best. And at least in sports, you know, if, at least if the referees don't intervene or something, like it's a pretty objective thing. I'm faster than you. I score better than you. And, and that's something that I understood as a kid playing golf. And then when I started to hit the onset of puberty, for whatever reason, I think it was mostly mental. Wait, I'm not that good. That's a, that was debilitating. To, to have, I was so cocky as a kid because I beat everybody until I started to play other tournaments and until other kids started to get older and they started to develop and all of a sudden to realize, wait, was I really good or was, I, was that just a mirage? Was that just a figment of my imagination? That, that messed me up. You know, there's no question that did. And, and, and you know. I think that has carried over in terms of how I think about my success as a cook today. And, you know, even in cooking, my, my first partner in cooking school quit school because she refused to be my partner <laughs> because I was so bad. Right. So that should, that's like, no one ever has that story. You know, it's six levels of culinary school, at least the one that I went to and you're paired up with a partner and you do everything together, like science in high school. And we finished level one, which was like two months. And she was so fed up with my ineptitude and just being a bad cook. She told the chefs, their instructors, that I don't want to have David as my partner anymore. And that just never happens. You don't change your partner regardless. And she said, I would, and then I quit. <laughs> I quit. I'd rather not become a cook than work with David. Than work with Dave Chang. So wait. Yeah. So so what? So that's not a positive um, reinforcement <laughs> yeah. thing. No. What keeps you? What kept you going? I think it was a fear of uh, embarrassment and fear of uh, not being able to do anything else. You know. And I've been given the privilege of having a lot of great access to things um, in education and opportunity and. Like many other people that got into cooking, you got into cooking because you couldn't do anything else. And I felt like I was, if I couldn't do this, what else was I going to do? So that was one, it was just fear and embarrassment of not being able to do anything else. And two, I think what I learned early on was if I just worked harder at this, I'll get better. And what I, what then gave me so much meaning as a person and, and ultimately saved me was that cooking was something I, if I poured myself in, I could objectively see moments of improvement and I could take a raw ingredient and, and get better at it by the end of the day, whether it be knife skills or how I butcher something or how I cook something repetition, you know, made me better. And that was, that was just incredibly addicting for me. So I really believe that like uh, hard work is the great equalizer in a lot, in a lot of things, but particularly in cooking, because we're not trying to make a rocket that goes to Mars, right? We're talking about food, which again, like isn't difficult, but simultaneously very difficult. And that was what, what really drew me in was I can get better at this. And, and it didn't take any skill other than being stubborn. So could you describe for folks the nature of your restaurants? I know they're very different. What you were trying to do, because if people are not familiar, they won't really know, you know, with the first restaurant, Momofuku Noodle Bar, and then the others, what you were trying to do and, and how you went about it? Uh, um, I didn't I it's really- a big, It's a big yeah, question. A big one. Give, I, me, I, give us a little summary, Dave. I wanted to bring ramen to America. That was originally it. And and do it in a way that wasn't Japanese to do something that was American. And Did you think about calling it Pomodoro? <laughs> That that probably would have worked better at the first year because whatever we did didn't work that well. We almost went out of business. Each time we opened a restaurant uh, for the first couple, we almost went out of business because it was just out of everyone's comfort zone. No one knew what the hell we were doing. You know, if I can look back with 2020 vision and connect the dots, the best way for me to explain to people was we were trying to reinvent what Asian American food was. And in the onset, I never said we were making Asian food. I said we were making American food because I didn't want to be typecast. And so much of what Momofuku became and still is today was, I won't say it's a referendum, but it was, it was just a, a starting point to see what food could be and to challenge authenticity, to also be an exercise of what is actually essential in dining. Do you need the ambiance? Do you need the taste vin on a sommelier? Do you need to have like a leather bound menu? 
can you play music? It was a so much of Momofuku early on, and we've still have some of that DNA as we've grown older, but we've matured, was questioning the status quo in food. And there was a lot of anger in how we approached a lot of these issues. So, you know, I know what I just said sounds insane because we're talking about restaurants, but it really legitimately was about doing things that weren't just specifically about food. So something else you're very honest about, which we should address and let you address, are not just sort of... um you know, issues related to business and issues related to financing, but your own mental health issues. Explain some of what you talk about in the book to folks. You know, without talking forever, basically, you know, I suffer from bipolar, which seems to be super popular these days, telling everybody that, hey, I have mental illness. But this is something I've been wrestling with for a long time. And I've had 16 years of therapy. And it's something I never even wanted to talk about, even with my own psychiatrist to start off. And you know, if you read the book, you'll know that that's one of the reasons why I opened up a business because I was just sort of, I had to make a binary choice of what to do. And I just, just decided I was going to do a restaurant. And so much of what and who I am was because of my illness. And it's something that I've kept private for a long time. But those that were close to me knew that you know, when they went problems, they would ask me and they're like, oh, Dave's pretty crazy. Let me ask him what he would do. And I've been able to help a lot of people over the years. And again, through therapy and, and getting better through the highs and lows, it's something that I've had a deep personal relationship with about how I talk about it. And I've never quite loved a lot of the other literature that's out there. Um, I think there are some really good books out there. Kay Jamison Redfield, um, Will Styron probably has the best, you know, he wrote Sophie's Choice and uh, he has a book called, a very short book called A Darkness Visible. And, you know, just talking about mental illness is off-putting for so many people like, oh, I don't want to hear this. This is like, whatever. This is too depressing, literally. And I think that was the problem is more and more people, at least in my business, in my world, suffered from some form of mental illness. I also know this because without a doubt, so many people in the Asian community, Korean American community suffer from mental illness, but you don't talk about it. It's seen as a form of weakness. And I just reached a point where I was like, enough's enough, right? People are suffering. This is stupid. We should be able to talk about this. And part of why I wanted to talk about this was to destigmatize it to the point, the goal really is can you look at mental illness the same way that someone might suffer from asthma or unfortunately cancer or something like that? Because these are all forms of illnesses that people are willing to be open about, yet mental illness, people want to be private and keep in the closet or even acknowledge it at all. And what has your experience been with medication? It's been topsy-turvy to say the least. And by the uh, way, I asked this because you were very specific. Yeah. As to time periods and as to particular medications you've taken. So I'm, I'm not I'm not probing something no, you, no, no, wouldn't, no. you wouldn't talk about in the book. Well, the, the way it all happened was I I viewed medication. First, first, I viewed getting help as a weakness, right? Secondly, okay, I get help. The last thing I ever wanted to do was take medicine. For that's that's where wimps. You just don't do that. And then you reach a point where you're like, wait, what am I who who am I trying to prove this to? Right. And, and I, I'm going to be I'm going to try it out. So you reluctantly try it out and you see what works and what doesn't work because each person is different and their body responds to medicine differently. And the psychiatric field has just so many like different kinds of medicine available to them. So I tried a bunch until I found, you know, a cocktail of stuff that worked well for me. And sometimes those things that work well for you begin to not work so well for you. So it's a it's a constant dialogue with your doctor about what is happening, how do you feel about something. And there was a period where I was off it completely. And I didn't even realize I was in a manic episode for a while and doing, you know, really stupid decisions about my business. And, you know, recently, Preet, I just got my DNA tested for um, the genome for all the things that... Uh, my body regulates with mental illness from my brain to how my kidney functions and, and, and liver and blah, blah, blah. And now I have like le legitimate science that tells me which, which medicines I need to be on. And I've now adjusted accordingly to that. So uh, that's been illuminating to see how my body like responds to different medicines and the genes that are working or not working in my favor so I could tailor it accurately. And how different would that be if you were, again, being treated for cancer? Because not every cancer treatment's the same. You need to adjust it accordingly for the person that's going through it. So 
it's it's the taking medicine has been a um, something I am passionately a believer in. You were, as you say in the book, close to Anthony Bourdain, Tony Bourdain, the noted author, uh, food expert, television host. What did he mean to you? I mean, Tony. Tony was an older brother to me, and and I really mean that. He was someone that I was very close to. Um, I never thought, like, originally when his book came out, Kitchen Confidential, I think a lot of people in the culinary world was like, whatever, this guy was a middling cook. But he wrote a book that was very honest about a certain kind of cooking, and it was something that changed our profession. And then he really became this iconic figure for so many people in the business. And I grew to admire him, not thinking that one day I would ever get to be friends with him. And out of the blue, he became someone that like promoted my career, that invested a lot of time in me. We worked together on several projects and he became my bodyguard in so many ways. Do this, don't do that, look out for this. And so much of my success I owed to him. And that's just one part of who Tony was. And the other part of Tony was someone that would, again, give me life advice, you, you know, and, and he was just someone that was always giving. And it wasn't just to me. Now, after he passed, we, we, we see he was this way to so many different people. And I don't know how he had the time to, to do things for himself, as we've seen that he really didn't. And as he became more successful, as he was uh, doing his CNN show, uh, I saw less of him because I didn't want to bother him. He was always so giving of his time. I didn't want to bother him so much. So I would say the last three years, I'd probably see him like a handful of times a year instead of once a month. And, um, you know, it's never easy to talk about, but I always felt that Tony was going to continue to show the way and lead the way for myself and many others. So it was incredibly sad the day that he killed himself. And when he did that, given that you had had thoughts along those same lines, did you have a particular kind of reaction? Uh, it was uh, intense sadness. One of my friends, the guy that actually did the, the cover of the book that never made it was, he said, I think we're sad because we're sort of mourning our own deaths <laughs> in, in the sense that this wasn't supposed to happen to Tony. This was supposed to happen to us. And the grief involved with that because we always placed Tony on a whole nother level that he was impenetrable to all kinds of problems. And I think what, what happened was that obviously was not true. And I think I felt guilty. A lot of people that knew him felt guilty that maybe we were part of the problem uh, in his life instead of the solution. And um, I, I, I think that was really a, a moment where I was going to be a lot more open about it too, because I never once asked Tony, yeah, we talked about it, but I, I never got deeper into it because there were certainly signs and Tony's never been shy uh, about a lot of the problems he's had. Um, and I just refused to go down those, those rabbit holes with him. Um, and it was always more self-serving to me. So I thought the best thing I could do to honor Tony was to talk about my own struggles. And, and that's what I did. But the day, the, the day he died and the months after it were incredibly sad and, and, and they still are. You talk a bit about being more grounded and being married, which you thought wouldn't happen for you and having a son. How, how are you doing now? I think it's the greatest thing in the world. And I'm so I, I feel so lucky to be part of this journey of his life and to be part of the club of being a dad, a parent. And that's the one positive being in quarantine. I don't think I ever would have spent this much time with him to the point where I think he's tired of spending time with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I just think it's the best. It's the best thing in the world. It really is. Um, well, I concur. That's That's been the only highlight of the pandemic for me too. My kids are older. Are you hopeful about the future? You know, Preet, I think most people that know me would say no, but I am. And I genuinely am. And I'm not just saying this. Um, one reason why I'm sort of sifting through all the dark elements of my business is because I do believe that's how we're going to find the answer. And I want to make sure unequivocally that we are prepared for the worst case scenario because we have the time. And I, I'm a big proponent of American pragmatism as a philosophy 
And I think we needed to do what is most useful right now. And, and that I think is safety protocols. That is making sure that our employees are going to be able to operate in a safe way and our diners as well. But, you know, we can't create a vaccine, so we can only do so many things, but we have the opportunity to address the underlying issues that, uh, negatively impact our business. And these are some impossible, quote unquote, from a lot of people in the business, Dave, these are impossible scenarios. How are you ever going to fix them? And we had Dr. Jim Kim on my podcast, and he's someone that is a very much influential figure in my life. And he said, they, they, they told him the same things when they were trying to tackle the AIDS crisis in Africa. That's an impossible thing, Jim. What you're doing is stupid and impossible. And I think the impossible is why I am hopeful, Pre. I really believe that because it's impossible and it's not just the problems of the food world. If we apply the paradigm of the old to the current problems of today, of course they're going to seem impossible. Where I have hope and I've always had hope, whether it's my own mental illness or my business or anything that's forward looking, is the hope that there will be an answer. And there is an answer if we persevere and if we sift through all the stuff that's happening, we find patterns and we're going to need ingenuity and innovation. And it may not happen for me. It may not happen for someone in the color industry. It could happen from a diner. It's that one idea that seems so, so crazy. That's what we need to be open about and to too. I mean, I, I just think that, that these ideas have to come from outside our industry and we need to be open to it. And I believe that we're going to find these ideas because it's not going to happen from what we're doing right now. And I know that sounds crazy. And this is the most optimistic I get is something that doesn't even happen. It's not even uh, in existence right now. I have to believe in that idea that something can be better. David Chang, congratulations on the book, Eat a Peach, a memoir. It's great. I hope it does very well. And it's been a real delight having you on the show. Thanks, Preet. I appreciate it. My conversation with Dave Chang continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In this special bonus, Dave and I discuss some of his stories from the kitchen, and Dave answers a lightning round of questions. Try out the membership free for two weeks at cafe.com insider. You'll get access to the full archive of exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, the Cyberspace podcast with John Carlin, the United Security podcast co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, audio essays by Ellie Honig and me, and more. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Dave Chang. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.